Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. So for instance, I might ask you right now a question I thought that I would like to know is, um, what is the most James Altucher thing about James Altucher? And what I really mean is, if one wanted to emulate you like what is one essential thing whether it's a a mindset a habit uh, a relationship whatever that you cannot be James Altucher without being my my thing is do do one thing each day that seems slightly scary and even it's very tiny, try hard to think of something that nobody else has done can I just say um, that was a very good answer for late, that was very generalizable. So are you encouraging people to do more frequent and short and probably unsuccessful outcome experiments? Okay. You don't have to have a goal either. It's interesting to do interesting things. The interesting thing is to do things and not to think about things. All right, now I'm gonna ask you a question. Okay. All right, well, uh, thanks for coming to the Question of the Day reunion. So, Question of the Day was a podcast we did for, how many episodes did we do? Well, we did it for almost exactly one year, and in the beginning, I think it was, I think it ended up being roughly three episodes a week. Yeah, we did five in one week sometimes. Maybe a little bit. Maybe when we start, I think, I don't know, but it got to be three, so roughly 156 if it was, you know, three a week for a year. Yeah. But just so you know, if, did it, I assume most of you, will raise your hand if you heard Question of the Day. I assume, okay, so some not, okay. So that was this podcast that James and I did that was literally a question a day um, that was mostly, I don't know what it was. It was fun, though. Uh, but uh, we batch recorded them for anyone who listened to them. So if you would listen to like one on Monday, one on Friday, one on uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, then the next week, like those six would have been recorded in the same day because we're lazy. So we would get together for one marathon day of yeah, the recording most we did and backgammon. Like and 12 in a day? I think we did, yeah. yeah. So, so it felt really, it felt good. It felt like a farmer that was putting in the whole crop for the year if you would get 12 done in one day because it was like that was literally a month's worth it was it was hard work like i would feel worn out after because like you have to think like i don't it's you would ask a question or i would ask a question, and then you have to like think of something to say speaking of getting worn out with sitting and doing next to nothing have you all read that piece in espn espn or si about the ESPN. and you would know this ESPN. I know what piece you're talking about. The calories burned by chess grandmasters. Yes, yeah. it's unbelievable. So it's just from mental 
Well, the brain exertion and stress in the brain really the brain does consume twenty five percent of your calories each day, right? So they're using their their stress, they're anxious, and to be fair, during a tournament, they're not sleeping as much. True, or eating a and lot. they're eating junk food. But to that end, to that point, then they're working smart out. People should be skinnier on average. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe that wouldn't is, that make sense? We're, maybe we're going to get to that. And then maybe I'll ask you that question. But, but the calorie loss was nutso. It was like Michael Phelps level calorie loss from playing chess. Yeah, 6,000 calories a day. They would say, I, mean, they I want to pick up chess just so I can eat a lot more cheeseburgers if, I, if that's <laughs> the way it is. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Trust me, if you go to a chess tournament, there are plenty of obese people that oh, they're playing okay. chess. All right. that would that's be just me. at like the top level, it seems. That would be me, except I can't so, play chess. Okay, anyway. The, the other thing about question of the day I just want to mention is that we did so many episodes that I would forget. I, there was one point I would ask you a question, and Nathan, the, the producer, would say, you already asked that in episode 27. Then I would ask another question, and you already asked that episode 39. Another question, you already asked that. I think that's why episode, we stopped. Yeah, because we... I, there, I went 10 questions in a row without coming up with the original question. And I couldn't even remember the other times I asked that or what your answer was. So it was becoming kind of useless to me. Do those of you who were listeners of Question of the Day, um, are you insulted by that fact that James couldn't even remember the questions that he'd asked? I could. I, my, I think it's because once I hit a certain age, I Puberty. just forgot. Right. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. A lot happens then. Yeah. So, Did anyone... Does anyone... Well, Either you have kids or you were a kid, but this book that my kids had when they first got <laughs> to a certain grade in school where they got sex ed, it's called, the book was called What's Going On Down There? Did anyone ever see that book? <laughs> it, was amazing. it was the best book title ever. What's Going On Down was There? It, um, <laughs> what, is a, what is it, one of those um, you could smell books? No. Is it? <laughs> Scratch and smell? <laughs> Pretty sure not, yeah. It was so, also not a choose your adventure book. Um, but now, of course, in 2019, it would be a choose your own adventure book. It would be. So, uh, Have we begun? No. Well, yes, the podcast part has begun, but who, 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 did we decide who's going to ask a question first? We did not. I kind of even forgot the format. Do, <laughs> I think it would begin. We'd literally sit down, Nathan would count us down, and then I'd say something like, hey, James. Then you would answer <laughs> or not. I forget. What did I, well, I would say, hey, Steven. Say, like, right? <laughs> would I spell like out that? your name? Would or I say hello? Your name? Hello, maybe. Want to try it again? All right, try. Go. Hey, James. Hey, Steven. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was good. Um, and then I'd say, James, I have a question for you. So truth be told, this began because I was obsessed with Quora. Do people know Quora? Yes, some? Yep. And, and, and I didn't know, and then I found out that you also were obsessed with it. And what I love about Quora is it is full of normal and abnormal people asking questions, many of which are banal, but some of which I think are amazing. And they're the kind of questions that you don't see in media. Um, you don't really see, I feel like in fiction so much. It was like people truly, truly asking the things that they most wanted to know about, whether it was about personal health and nutrition or, you know, a, lot, a very common question is, tell me about a famous person who was really nice. Or tell me about a famous person who was really mean. Or tell me about like an experience that really scarred you. So there are like these kind of generic ones, but there are so many amazing questions. And I thought like, like the stuff that I do with Freakonomics, we put so much research into one given episode that it's usually a big 
kind of serious-ish question, or not serious, but you know, something that you're gonna spend a lot of time with. But these were just like everyday questions that I loved, and I thought we should do something, and as it turns out, James loved them too. So we started by stealing questions from Quora, or borrowing. And the, we know. did call Quora and see if they could partner with us on this, and they were like, blah, blah, blah. They said, they said something that was neither a yes or no. I think they and made we, the right And we just choice. moved forward yeah. and just stole questions from them yeah. and even read off questions, answers. Yeah. <laughs> Although I shouldn't say stole because we did acknowledge and we even named the people um, and so on. But then we started coming up with our own questions for each other because you know, we've been friends for a long time and know each other medium well. So for instance, I might ask you right now a question I thought that I would like to know is um, what is the most James Altucher thing about James Altucher. And what I really mean is, if one wanted to emulate you, like what is one essential thing, whether it's a, a mindset, a habit, uh, a relationship, whatever, that you cannot be without being, that you cannot be James Altucher without being? Uh, I don't really know how to answer that because I could, I think... I think acknowledging mistakes, uh, making lots of mistakes, being willing to make lots of mistakes, and then being transparent about acknowledging them. I mean, we've, this, this is related. We talked about this a lot during many of the episodes of Question of the Day, like how to learn something, how to get better at something, how to, whether, you know, not necessarily life hacks, but how to improve at whatever it is you love. Like you loved golf, half the episodes would be about golf when it was your turn to talk. <laughs> and I loved the things I loved. And we were always trying to get better at, at, at all these different things. And we were trying to figure out, and we would talk about the 10,000 hour rule a lot. So the idea that you need to put in a certain amount of work in order to get achieve at the top, the top layers of success or something. So I'm always very interested in achieving at the top layers of success, but you make a lot of mistakes along the way part of getting successful is going is, is doing things that nobody else has done uh, because then that's how you stand out that's how you get noticed else you're kind of buried with the crowd you won't you won't learn a lot you won't achieve success you won't experiment and so I think now since since then I've realized probably what I did more often than even I should have was what I call the 10,000 experiment rule which is rather than devoting 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to something, you experiment over and over at things you have no idea how they will work out, and 95% of the time, you're gonna screw up or things are, bad things will happen, but you'll learn enough from the experience that as long as you don't stake everything on one experiment, then you can keep on making experiments and keep on getting better. And I think that, if I look back, Probably I staked too much on experiments, and now probably I stake less. But I think one common thing is that I probably experimented a lot at everything I wanted to, to do or get better at. Give a, for instance, of one or two things that you tried and were bad at and didn't really go anywhere. All right, so I could, I could go to any year. So like 19, 1996, I wanted to do a TV show, uh, or 1995 even, and I... I was good at building websites and nobody else, very few people in New York City at that time knew how to, how to do it. So Comedy Central, which HBO owned half of, I worked for HBO, Comedy Central uh, asked me to do their intranet. And they said they would pay me on the side. And I said, I don't wanna get paid. 
I said, I want the 3 a.m. time slot on Comedy Central. Because right now, you, all you have is infomercials. And if I do this internet for you, it's going to be much more valuable than the 3 a.m. time slot is for you. And so to their credit, the head of the IT department there went up to the CEO, who was Doug Herzog at the time, later with the CEO of MTV. And she, she came back with his answer. She said, uh, no. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not going to do the internet. But then I had this idea. I still wanted to do a TV show. So I had this idea. I went to Jeff Bugis, uh, the CEO of HBO later, the CEO of Time Warner. And everybody kept telling me, you can't just go see him. He was my boss's 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 boss at the time. I think there was one more boss in there. But I just went to his office and I said, just like HBO is good at original programming, how about you do web programming? Because the only thing I was in charge of was their website. I couldn't say I want to do a TV show, but that was my real secret goal. And so I, he said, whatever you want to do, I don't, I don't care. I don't give a shit about the internet. And so I, I did this web show for HBO called 3 a.m. where I'd walk around uh, uh, New York City at 3 in the morning interviewing people every Tuesday. And I did this for like four years, three or four years for them. And I interviewed basically hundreds, maybe thousands of prostitutes, uh, dominatrices, uh, uh, pimps. Are you exaggerating a little bit? You interviewed no, thousands of yeah, prostitutes and... Yeah, because every, every night I'd interview 20 and I'd select the best four of that week or every Tuesday, once a week, uh, I would interview at least 20. That was my minimum. And then I would take the best four. And what night of the week did you find the best talking? Either Tuesday or Wednesday night. So Saturday night, anybody could be out at three in the morning. You could be out at three in the morning. You could be out at three in the morning. Tuesday night, if you're... If Steve Cohen is out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night, something bad is going down. <laughs> and, so, and so Tuesday night, that was the time you wanted to go because why everybody else is, goes to work the next day or goes to school the next day. If you were out, at, think of the last time you were out at three in the morning on a Tuesday night, something bad was probably happening. And so it was interesting. So I would do all these crazy things. Like I would, uh, I went out to Rikers Island on the bus that goes from, there's a bus 24 hours a day that goes from, one stop in Queens to Rikers Island and back because as soon as you're bailed out of Rikers Island, they have to release you. And I would, I spent weeks just hanging around that bus stop and then going on the bus. I would go to Wall Street. I'd go to the meatpacking district where it was disgusting then. It wasn't like how it's like all fancy now. Go to the Lower East Side, which was disgusting. I love how your tone of voice on Wall Street was like the most pejorative. Like I'd go to Rikers Island to hang out. I'd interview prostitutes. I'd go to Wall Street. <laughs> well, because actually Wall Street was pretty dead and nobody would talk to me. Like they were like, hey, we're running a Ponzi scheme. We can't talk to you. Where, where, whereas in the meatpacking district, it was unbelievable how many Johns would talk to me. Like they would be like drunk or whatever. And then they would realize this going on TV and they had already just signed a release form. So uh, whatever. So did these air on an HBO internet? No. So that's the thing. So yes. So I, I had hundreds of, I did this again for, for four years. So let's say 200 times, 20 people per time, whatever that is. So like several thousand people I interviewed, probably the beginning of my, it's like the original podcast really for me. And, but my goal was to have a TV show. So this was like a massive experiment of doing. Why did, did you want the TV show because it was fun or profitable yeah. or you wanted to be famous or why did you want No, that? no. I mean, I was only interested in writing at this point. So I 
was offered two jobs when I moved to New York City, HBO and JP Morgan. HBO was paying 40,000 a year, this is 1994. JP Morgan offered me 80,000 a year, I took HBO, because I figured this is how I'll, I was trying to write a novel, and then as soon as I got to HBO, I wanted to write, I started writing screenplays and submitting them places, and so I figured, oh, this is my backdoor way. I always try to figure out, so this is a, a point that I always do, I always try to figure out the backdoor way to do something. I figure if I do this web series and it gets popular and it's at HBO, they'll give me money to shoot a pilot, which they did. Sheila Nevins, who was the head of documentaries at HBO, she said, let's do a pilot. She gave me some money. We got a, a producer, John Alpert. I don't know if you, you know, and he's done a bunch of um, uh, documentaries. I think uh, The Hookers at Hunt Point, so classics. And, uh, uh, and so it was a backdoor way for me, the guy working in the IT department, suddenly I was shooting a pilot for HBO. The reason I say the experiment didn't necessarily work as the pilot never aired, but it gave me a lot of experience. It gave me a huge amount of knowledge about making, doing interviews, making content that's creative. It was the first time I was paid to write something because I would write intros for each uh, chapter in this. And then I learned with a, a guy who made 50 documentaries how to make a, the sort of documentary that aired on HBO. So let me ask you this. When you say the experiment didn't work, um, so, I mean, I think most people would hear that and and identify with what you're saying, right? Because if you attempt something and it doesn't succeed or you don't get the outcome you wanted, you consider it a failure to some degree. But let me ask you this. I mean, I, and, and I, I agree, my, my goal for that experiment was to have a show on TV, but I'm not disappointed with what happened. Right, well, that's what I wanted to ask because I think a lot of people, so do, do people here watch the NFL? Yeah. Some, like... <laughs> yeah, I know that. I didn't even. I didn't even move He's my head even in this direction. When he asked that question, he yeah. only looked at you. James, when you ask James a question like that, he'll say, "Is that a sport game?" And you realize that no. So raise your hand if you watch the NFL a little bit or no. Okay, so not so much. So in the, the NFL is um, a great product, et cetera, et cetera. It's also controversial, et cetera, et cetera. But my point is, um, what's interesting about it is there's a lot of decision making. Um, it's a very unusual, I mean, if you think about football not as a physical thing that you may like or not like, if you think about it like a chess match, whatever, like a lot of football people throughout history have called it like a, a, a multi, 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 multi-dimensional chess match because you've got 11 people on either side of the ball and they all move on every play. So it's extraordinarily complex and dynamic in that way. And therefore, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of deceit, there's a lot of, um, there's, and there's a lot of decision making. So last week, um, there were two games, I think, that both came down to a last minute, essentially, last second, essentially, decision of whether to, you score a touchdown, then you have a choice to either go for two points by running a play from the two-yard line, two, or did they move it back, two-yard line? Yeah. And, and that's fairly lower, that's probably, I don't know what the overall probability of success is there, maybe 40% if I had to guess, but I don't know, maybe, maybe higher? Right, but the, if you add up all the, all the going for it and succeeding, I think the probability is between 40 and 50%, but I may be wrong. In that neighborhood, let's say it's 60% even. Or you can kick an extra point for one point, and the probability there is about 91% now, okay? So it's either, they moved it back. It used to be like 99. So if you're a coach and your team has just come back and tied the game, or sorry, you, you've come back and you've got like one second left on the clock and you're one point behind, you can kick an extra point and tie and now go to overtime and take a chance that you'll win in overtime, or you can go for the two-point conversion 
And if you make it, you win, and that's awesome. And if you miss it, you lose. So there's no, you know, you're, you're not hedging your bet at all. And last week, two people went for it. I think it was last week, and I think in week one, too. And the guy who got it wrong, or the guy whose team lost, like, it was an amazing comeback. They were on the road. If they had made the play and scored two points, they would have won. It would have been a great victory for this team, but they didn't. And everybody basically came down on him and said, you're an idiot because you could have kicked the extra point, ensured a tie, and gone to overtime. And his view was, well, if you look at what we're here to do, which is win, not tie and take a chance, and if you look at the probability, which was pretty decent, 40 to 50%, I think I made the right choice, but the outcome wasn't what we wanted it to be. Now, only in football can you not say that. Like in the corporate world, you can say that. You, people might think you're wrong. Or, or in something like poker, where the odds are very clear in front of you, that even you could always make, you, you could even have an 80% chance against winning, but if the pot odds are greater than, I don't know, five to one or whatever, then uh, you should always make the decision and in the long run you win money. But there's no long run in football. So my question is basically, how can more people um, do experiments or uh, try things where the outcome may not be what they desired, but the uh, experience and knowledge gained, et cetera, et cetera, uh, are still net positive. How can more people be encouraged to do basically what you've done a lot, which is fail productively without feeling like you're a quote failure per se? Right, and so that was a funny question. I agree, <laughs> thank you. So, 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 Take this as an example, right? I didn't get the goal that I wanted, but just like, I mean, you did hundreds of interviews in the 90s. You know, you were a reporter for the New York Times, right? Or a bunch of places, you wrote a bunch of books. All that kind of geared you towards being an interviewer for Freakonomics and Freakonomics podcast, for me with the, my podcast. So, and then when I started with the hedge fund world, I started off investing a small amount of money. I started off, reaching out to hedge fund managers, again, experimenting and going the backdoor way instead of working at Goldman Sachs, getting an MBA, working at a hedge fund, and then starting one. That's kind of the traditional path. There's always, what you gain from these experiments, even if they're tiny ones, is that you get knowledge from each one. No, I'm buying what you're selling, right. but I think a lot of people don't. So I'm asking if you could distill the James Altucher-ness of right. willingness to fail in pursuit of longer term growth, whatever, because people don't like to fail. People don't right. like to even try things so, where so, they might fail. So my suggestion, and this is what I even should have done then, I think I was taking too, making too big of, uh, the experiments were taking up too much time, like years, but practice doing smaller experiments. So find an experiment that will take only a couple of days of your time or an hour of your time, or you know, not so much money. And you, 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 you just get used to the idea of failing, get used yeah. to the feeling of failing. I'll give you, can I give you an example of the past few days? Yes, please. So I put on Kickstarter uh, uh, a fundraiser. I wanted to raise money. I wanted to crowdfund an idea I had. Uh, what was the idea? I wanted to buy Greenland. <laughs> so 
Greenland is sort of a country, sort of not, that's owned by Denmark. Donald Trump tweeted, I want to buy Greenland. And everybody yelled at him. And Denmark said it's not for sale, uh, which, as you would probably counter from the free economics viewpoint, is essentially there's a price for everything. We did an episode called, about five years ago, called Should the U.S. Merge with Mexico? And it was not a joke. I mean, it was a actually... The president of Mexico, who we interviewed, thought it was a joke. Um, he didn't like the idea, but everybody else saw merit in it. So no, I'm totally on board with buying other. I think buying other countries is way better than just invading them and taking all their stuff. Sure. And and when you when I actually so so coming up with this idea for this fundraiser, which at first was like a joke in my mind, and I had never done any kind of crowdfunded project on Kickstarter. So I learned Kickstarter, I learned GoFundMe, I learned Indiegogo. I kind of learned the pros and cons. So I have to do is research in that. And then I started doing research on why we would want to buy Greenland. And I actually saw there were huge reasons why one would want to buy Greenland. So you decided that you would be the one to buy it? Yeah, so I, I wanted to buy it for and anybody who participated in the fundraiser. So, so I, I and mapped it all out. How much were you trying to raise? Hmm? How much were you trying to raise? 100 million. So on, on Kickstarter, which obviously had never been done before. And, and this, uh, this was last week? This was two days ago. And so what do you have by now, the way, 50, every day, you have like 50, 60 million now? How much do you have now? No, because here's what happened. Uh. So start, I wrote it all up for Kickstarter, did all my research. There was like 20 reasons why you'd want to buy Greenland. Put it all on Kickstarter. I had the rewards, like for a dollar, you become a citizen. For $100, for $100, you would get an acre of land. For $10,000, I would make you like a duke. <laughs> and so I had a bunch of rewards. Wait, how many acres of land are there? Uh, almost 500 million acres. 500 million. Yeah. So enough that if everybody gives 100, you still give them an acre, you still got plenty left over. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because there's 56,000 Eskimos living there, and you want to leave some, you know, a tiny little area for them to stand in. And really charitable of you. Yeah. So, by the way, Greenland has the highest suicide rate of any country in the world. That's if it not were a true. Country. It's not true. It Just is. Just looked it up the other day. So Lithuania would be number one, but Greenland's not a country, so oh, that's sorry. why it's not on the list. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So Lithuania is My forty-two bad. out of a hundred thousand. Uh, Greenland is eighty-three out of a hundred thousand per year. So, but anyway. So if you just wait a little while longer, you won't even have to buy it. No, because Denmark. <laughs> sorry. It, it was amazing the reaction I got from Danes. That was another thing I learned. But Kickstarter immediately, like within seconds, rejected my whole thing. I spent all this time building this and they rejected it. And I figured it was an algorithmic. Maybe they assumed I wouldn't raise $100 million. So they thought, so the algorithm just rejected it. And then GoFundMe let me publish this. And I actually started raising money. People started sharing it and donating money because I said I was going to return any money if I didn't succeed in buying Greenland. Now, can I just ask you a, a slight tangent? But the way you said Trump's name indicates that you're not a big fan of Trump. I have no idea if you are, but you said I, you I, kind of. I honestly never. I think issue by issue, I don't really. Another thing I believe in is I don't believe there should be any president, but I actually like this idea of buying Greenland. Okay, but here's the question. I, I was just curious. The feedback to your um, effort to raise money to buy Greenland. How much of it? dealt with the fact that it, the idea was made public not so long ago by Trump? Uh, I would say about 20 or 30%. And did so, that work against you or in your favor? Uh, a little bit in my favor because other people responded to them. So, so other people would say, you didn't read his article about it. You didn't read it. Other people would say, I'll tell you one. So one person from Denmark said, this, 
what, what's wrong with all of you Americans? This is an, an insult to all people from Denmark. And I said, and I responded, you know, you guys lose 700 million a year on subsidizing Greenland. And it's got the highest suicide rate in the world, highest unemployment rate, huge alcoholism. It's not like you're doing such a great job over there. <laughs> so give someone else a chance. And why not knock off some of your debt with the amount I would raise to pay you? And, and what was your stated um, purpose of owning it? Uh, because it is so important uh, in terms of natural resources. So Greenland has 38% so of the world's profit. rare earth minerals. Right. Profit and also protection. 90% of the world's production right now comes from China, which is, you know, affecting the balance of world trade. So if there is some independent, like, and, and also, there's a company mining the rare earth minerals in Greenland called Greenland Minerals. Guess who owns it? The Chinese. So, and the EU begs Denmark, don't let, don't do this. And Denmark's like, no, 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 we, it's Greenland Minerals, it's okay. And uh, so, so, but anyway, what happened was, uh, go fund me, let me raise money for a few days. And then they wrote me a note and said, you know what, we're closing it down. <laughs> You're probably not going to raise. And why? Because they, it was too much? Or no, they, they, yeah, I think they, their stated reason was they were afraid of chargebacks. Uh, and, and they, chargeback is when you're unsuccessful in your no, campaign? No, no, no. When, when if people are unhappy during the process and they decided, they call up American Express, it's like, oh, no, I didn't really donate. <laughs> and so that's, that's a problem if you're not going to achieve the goal. There, there's certain loss that GoFundMe could have that they could have discussed with me and maybe I would have worked out a solution, but they automatically... Okay, I have a question for you. Um, if not, if, if, since you can't buy Greenland, or at least this week... Um, if there's one country that you could buy as a representative of the United States or just as James Altucher, what country do you most want to own? You know, I've just spent all this time thinking about Greenland. And it can't I'm, be. I'm I know that's your dream. I'm obsessed with Greenland. History I, of, I read, of dreamers who can't get their first dream and they have to go down the list. On, 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 I was even reading on Google Maps, there's reviews of every location. I was reading the reviews. Like, why would someone give a one-star review to the nuke International Airport, Nuke being the capital of Greenland. So I was, I was, that's all I've been thinking about for the past few days is Greenland. I know, but, but you're, not, you're not answering. This is why okay, the show okay. stopped. I would ask a question, James would not answer it, and okay. then it would end. Okay, number two, I would get Tonga. Uh, uh, so I, for some reason. Where's Tonga? Tonga is in the middle of Polynesia. It's a kingdom. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it's. What is Polynesia? Is that a group of countries? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, all the islands. Is Tahiti part of Polynesia? I think so, yeah. Anybody know? Yeah, it's is all the it countries between like, think is, of it, no, no, it's French, it's English. It's a lot of, it's I mean, a lot of them. Uh, Tahiti's French, right? Or Fr was French, right? It's, it's, it's all the islands and countries in between, let's okay. say, Hawaii and New Zealand. All right, so why do you want Tonga? I don't know, I just, I, I can't give a full answer because I've been fascinated by this. It's one of the bigger countries in this area, and it seems easy to really, invade. You don't really want it, is what I'm thinking. You don't really. That's right. But here's the thing. I think most people actually would want a country. Can we just have audience? No, I don't. No, no, I'm not asking for um, consensus. I want to hear if you could own a country, it would be what? Any country. Yeah, there you go. You are such a copycat. Or, or Tonga. Or here's another one. Here's here's another great one. But a think of Andorra all the, in the. Um, does mountains. no one want to own like Italy or France or England? It's too hard. Oh. 
No. Gre- Greenland's huge, and there's only 56,000 people yeah, you have you to deal with. Yeah, you got a suicide rate of like 90%. And, yeah. And the Chinese of, are taking your I'm rare blaming minerals. So how good is that? I, okay. I'm blaming Denmark. So the <clears> point is, that's a tiny experiment. Took me half a day's worth of effort. It was fun. It had the potential to be interesting. I didn't think I was going to raise $100 million. And the next I, time a country comes up for sale, you're going to be I ready. I know exactly what to do. But that's also an experiment in me getting out there in a different way than just writing an article or doing a podcast. Yeah. So that could have been a vehicle for that or Can not. Can I just say, um, that was a very good answer for like, that was very generalizable. So are you encouraging people to do more frequent and short and probably unsuccessful outcome experiments? Yeah. My, okay, so- My so, thing is do, do one thing each day that seems slightly scary and even if it's very tiny, try hard to think of something that nobody else has done. No one's ever done a crowdfunding, uh, uh, a crowdfunding post for a country. At the time I did the 3 a.m., no one had ever done a web series. Uh, uh, so try to think of something little, though, that nobody else has ever done. And Do you keep a list of these things in your waiter's uh, yeah. notepad? Yeah. What's, what's next? Uh... So what's next is I've been collecting, uh, I don't have, hold on one second, hold on, hold on, hold on. Money. I, I will show you, and then, and then we'll conclude this question, because I have questions for you too. Um, I have money in my pocket, what, but specifically- What country was that, here. was that Greenland money? Here, no, check that out. So that's, so, so try to figure out what that is. It looks Korean. Is it Co- Korean money? Half right. North Korean money? 100% right. <laughs> so it's North Korean money. That's 1978 issued, uh, wow. 101. And it's Kim Jong-il, the, the father of the current dictator on it. You think it's seven, it says 1978 on it. You really think this is a 1978 issue bill? What makes you know that? Uh, the person, I, maybe I'm fooled by the person who sold it to me. Okay. Maybe it's forged. So wait, so you but, bought like a fairly pristine 40-year-old North Korean bill and you're carrying I, it in your pocket. I have, I have... I have so many of them that I have a lot of North Korean won and and Iraqi dinars as well from pre two thousand two. And here's the thing. Here's the thing I want to try. This is a Freakonomics ish experiment. I want to go into a variety of stores, restaurants, delis, whatever. Get a cup of coffee, and then when he charged me a dollar, say, "Oh, oh I don't oh. have a dollar. All I've got is this hundred North Korean won." Now, Can you take that? Would you go into a, a deli that happens to be owned by that rare um, American businessman who came from North Korea? Uh, because that, otherwise, you think you have any chance of success? I don't know. I've tried it in a few places and had to go. Over. They've all said no. So, really? Here, but really, I'm shocked. But here's the interesting thing: <laughs> some people actually don't want to touch the money. <laughs> like some people, I've never noticed that before with money. Like usually, people could like. Huh. They don't care about touching it. It's like I'll give someone a book; they'll, they'll hold the book. But actually, people like back off from the money. Do they you don't say want to this it. is North Korean money? Yeah. And I... yeah, I said all I've got is a hundred North Korean won. This is worth thirty dollars in North Korea right now. Uh, there's like an exchange rate, and I said you probably. What do you think that's about? That they don't want to touch it? I don't know. I don't know. And I've noticed this several times. This is one thing. This is what experiments do. I'm in preparing for this experiment because I want to videotape it and document the results which again costs me little and takes half a day. But just practicing this a little bit to get ready, I've noticed a good 10 to 20% 
physically hmm. pull back from the money so they and it's can't not touch you it. that they're pulling back from. It could be for me, but I only notice it when I'm holding North Korean money. <laughs> right, but it could be that the kind of person who would come into my restaurant and eat my food and then offer me North Korean money might be the kind right. of person. Some, I'm just guessing. No, but that's, that that could be that if you're if you're doing something that's not the protocol transaction right then there maybe something goes off in their brain uh oh something has anyone pulled but, but back by the way from, has by, anyone pulled back from the dinar yes uh but what I'm not, it's not even when i have try, you tried canadian money uh canadian money they'll take so because they know it's about the same have whatever. you tried uh english money no but i've also offered this to North Korean one to friends who normally wouldn't pull back. And I've even seen the reaction there that like some people will be like, I'm not touching that. Like they would, one person actually said that. And so there must be some, I don't know what it is in the brain that uh, they don't want to touch. You the know North that Korean I one. believe virtually everything that anyone tells me, but I have a hard time believing this. It's true. I, I didn't know this would happen as well. That's the interesting thing about experiments. Do we believe he, James that people pull back when they hear that it's North Korean money? We do. She's she's seen it happen. All right. So I know you're married to him, so you've got to believe him at least. <laughs> no, but she saw the person who said, "I'm not touching that." So what do we think is the mechanism by which people are afraid to or reluctant to touch money from North Korea? What 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 do you think is behind that? Yes. Being really, you think being, so? Nerve agents, what? man. Oh, oh yeah, maybe that. Or listening yeah, device. Maybe you're wanted by the state and Not only do I find that answer more believable than um, <laughs> that sounds so crazy that I'm gonna buy it. Here, yeah. Here's 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 my here's my theory is that obviously we have financial sanctions against North Korea, so maybe people have worked out the logic that if they hold this money, they might be guilty of a crime. <laughs> You think so? I, I mean, that's another Anybody theory. buying that? I'm willing to believe any theory. I, I actually don't know the answer. All I, I know is, is that this happens, and that's one of the results so far of this experiment. And what would you say is the primary question you're trying to answer with this experiment? Uh, nothing. I just want to... Sometimes you don't have to have a goal either. It's interesting to do interesting things. The interesting thing is to do things and not to think about things. It's just, just doing this is unusual and it's fun and satisfies some curiosity of mine. And where'd you get the money? Uh, in this particular case, I went to, um, we were at an auction and they had a bunch of uh, people selling currencies. Mm -hmm. and, and I bought a bunch of currencies. I bought a, a $3 bill. <laughs> There's some states, you, states used to issue their own currencies. So some state had a $3 bill. And what'd you pay for the North Korean money? Uh, you don't mind me I think like five dollars for a hundred of these, something like that. <laughs> so they're like coasters, basically. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. I bought uh, the Iraqi dinars. I bought all these weird two-dollar bills. You didn't offer me. Here, you can have it. You you did hold it. So well, obviously you do. You were. I had no fear. Yeah. No now fear. Now that you mentioned nerve agent, now I'm okay. Can mm. I keep it though? Yeah, yeah. You can oh, keep it. Okay. I have thousands of North Korean won. <laughs> There's lots of experiments I could do with this. So that's what I mean by uh, that's what I mean by a small experiment cost me little to nothing and it's interesting and I learned something from it and you could do basically one every day and over the course of a year you're going to learn thousands of things and so the I'll call it the ten thousand experiment rule for success and but it, when and it you works. Began um, this line of 
talking, you were kind of down on yourself for doing the 10,000 experiments. Because I think I wasn't calculating the stakes correctly. So now I'm doing things I feel are just as interesting, but the stakes are much less. So, and this applies to like investing. I, one thing I find out in decades of investing is that the smaller amount you invest in a project, probably the more money you make because you're less rule governed by fear. And if it goes up a little bit, there's less incentive for you to sell because you're looking for the big, you're willing to ride like a big gain and really create value uh, as opposed to like short gains, which you'll never be able to see the long-term outcome if you are always, you know, investing too big and then taking profits too quickly. So, so this applies to experiments too. Uh, small experiments can compound to huge results as opposed to having too high a stake in something working out and then you get depressed, disappointed, you don't plan it carefully enough because you're willing to spend years working at it and uh, it could be life altering to fail an, uh, an experiment that's too large. So that's what, that I would say is, this is a way, you know, to use the word choose yourself, this is a way I, I could do things that nobody's ever done before, risk little, learn from them, move on to the next experiment, and then hit the accelerator on anything that seems more interesting. So if I'm writing a book and it seems to be working uh, and people seem to like what I've been writing, I could hit the accelerator, finish that book, write another book, whatever. S similar to what you did, you wrote Freakonomics, that one worked, you, obviously you wrote a sequel. Other books, you didn't necessarily write a sequel. Those are almost like little experiments, or those are much bigger. You're staking a year or two of your life and writing this huge book, but you know, sometimes those experiments work out too. All right, now I'm gonna ask you a question. Okay. So this is related to Freakonomics. I remember as you were writing it, I remember the initial New York Times article that it was based on that you wrote. It was in the Sunday Magazine. I remember everyone was fascinated with this article you wrote about this economist, Stephen Levitt, in Chicago. And I remember even thinking then, so I'll ask it now, economics, when I think of my economics classes from college, I think the only thing I could really remember is the phrase, price is a function of supply and demand. So more demand, the price goes up, more supply, the price goes down, and, and so on. I think, I think of Freakonomics as price equals supply, is a function of supply, demand, and some mystical factor, the freakishness of it, <laughs> and hence Freakonomics. So I, I, what is the difference? What, what, what is the difference between Freakonomics and economics, or any nomics? Oh, because there okay. became a lot of nomics after your book. Well, to be fair, there were a lot of nomics. Reaganomics was pretty prominent before, but, but there were but, books like Soccernomics and... Yeah, which other, is, by the way, has anybody read Soccernomics? Zero? It is a really, really good book. If you like soccer at all, it's kind of about the... Sort of about the... It's not just about the business of soccer. Anyway, it's a very, very good book. Um, so the difference between, whatever, economics and Freakonomics... Um, so and, and, and just to add to this question, I noticed a lot, like when we went on Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk, he, he was asking you all these economics questions, kind of showing, I mean, there's a huge difference between Freakonomics and economics. You, you, I think he was in, asking left-handed questions about space economics, which yeah. I'm not an authority in, unfortunately. Well, I don't think, but, I don't necessarily think of Freakonomics as economics. 
And so, so this also gave credence. I think a lot of people ask you about economics when actually Freakonomics is sort of almost a yeah. different field. So, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't think Freakonomics is a thing that can, needs to be like defined because Freakonomics is basically whatever we write about. I mean, it, it's a, it's a I don't believe that though. Well, I mean, I could say that there are a bunch of, um, you know, tenants. So the tenants would be that it is kind of a hybrid version of um, storytelling that is empirical and journalistic, right? So most storytelling, you know, if you read non, if you read nonfiction books or if you read newspapers and magazines, most nonfiction is not very empirical. It tends to be more anecdotal or experiential. Uh, most academic research and most economic research particularly is very empirical and not very narrative driven or not very, you know, storytelling. So if I had to, if I had to define it, um, I would say it's A, that, a kind of hybrid of um, empirical and narrative or storytelling journalism. Can you give an example of the storytelling that makes you, like, if you hear a certain story, you feel to yourself, that's very Freakonomics-ish. <laughs> It's not so much when you hear a well. I guess um, I guess there are a, a, a few different elements of stories that make them interesting to me or to me and Levitt. Um, surprising um, causes um, of effects that you thought you knew. Um, like what? Oh gosh, um, I should have a thousand at the top of my head. Um, um, okay, so here's one. Um, Tiger Woods um, is the most famous golfer, I guess, in history. Easily, some people think he's the best golfer in history. A case of which could be pretty easily made. Um, he's also one of the relatively very, very, very few African American. He's actually he doesn't consider himself African American. He considers himself Coblin Asian, Caucasian, Black, Indian, and Asian. Um, but most people identify him as Black. Okay, just the way race works in this country. And um, so he's been the most prominent golfer the past 25 years, and also one of the very, very few African-Americans competing at a high level. There's another guy now, Harold Varner III, for those, right? Everybody loves Harold Varner III, not a lot of golf fans. So um, I so, knew this, by the way, would turn into a golf podcast. Right, there you go. <laughs> so you were right. So interestingly, before Tiger Woods, um, so everybody kind of assumes that Tiger Woods was like the beginning of pro-black golfers and that there would be a lot more. And a lot of people have been very disappointed that there haven't been more because it seems like an equity issue and an access issue at a time when golf is getting much more global. Um, this kid won on the PGA Tour last week named Joaquin Neiman, who I think is from Chile, and he came from the Latin American Tour. That's the first time that ever happened. There are a lot of great Chinese golfers, a lot of great uh, South Korean male golfers, half of like the LPGA winners are South Korean women. Like it's become very, very global, which is exciting if you like, you know, whatever, sports, globalism, blah, 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 blah. But very few African-American golfers. And people say, why? What's the reason? And, you know, it's kind of the typical reasons you would expect. Um, the median African-American, let's say, might not have as much access to golf as one might like. Um, maybe because of a history of discrimination and exclusion that African-Americans who might be inclined toward golf instead go to sports where they've been more historically uh, larger, uh, better represented, et cetera. But there's a different theory. And the theory is this. Um, 
has to do with automation. Can you guess? I bet you can figure it out but without me even saying it. It has to do with, um, has to do with technology. Were they 3D printing clubs? <laughs> or the, pri the price of clubs no, think, was going straight down, so it was easier for... Think technology like 30 or 40 years ago. You'll, you guys will figure it out collectively. Come on, we can do a, a collective hive mind thing. Even if you know nothing about golf, when you watch people, if you drive by a golf course, what do you see? Just like, like what do you see people? Sand and grass? Uh, yes, golf carts. So before there were golf carts, there were what? Caddies, right? So before golf carts happened, which was, you know, they started a while ago, but they became really common like 40, 50 years ago. Before golf carts, there were caddies. So when you were like a member of a golf club or went somewhere that had the setup, you wouldn't carry your own bag. There'd be people there. And a lot of them, especially in the South and Midwest, were African-American. And there were a boatload of really, 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 really good African-American players in the pro and just below the pro levels. There were never a ton in the PGA, but there were a lot of really good players in part because they had access because they were caddies. They had access to the course. So it would look to be, so to me, that's the kind of story that you hear where there's like a technological improvement and you wouldn't think that it would possibly, you know, have downstream effects about race and who participates in something. But that kind of thing happens all the time in the world. And for me, that's a super fun thing to, to figure out. Um, so to do that, I just, you know, read a lot of history, talk to a lot of people, look for surprising things, da 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 da. Um, uh, so wait, connect, connect that to Tiger Woods though. So, so all these caddies stop being caddies because of golf carts, but they still wanted to be... They just, there were a lot of African-Americans who before had access to golf courses and to practicing and playing and getting really good, who once the golf cart happened, that access diminished greatly. Here's another one. Um, we'll make it a quiz. Um, who in the last uh, six months has had mutton for dinner or lunch, right? I'm guessing zero, okay, right? What is mutton? Mutton is lamb that's older than, it's either two years or three years, although I think some places count it as two years and some places count it as three years. It's basically old lamb. Okay, so some people eat lamb chops or rack of lamb, but mutton is older lamb. Okay, um, mutton used to be um, one of the most popular meats in America. So like, if you go way back, pork was number one, then beef, and America got really good at raising beef, really, really good, kind of set a world standard. Um, but even then, mutton was still a very, very widely consumed um, meat. And then right after World War II, mutton went from being very widely consumed in the U.S. to almost not eaten at all. Can anyone tell me why? Say again? Cotton. Oh, very close. Cotton was the guess. And cotton, you're not right, but you're on the right track. And cotton and therefore what? Why, why would you say Cotton. Clothing, which would have replaced wool, right? So you're you're like 95% right. So instead of cotton, it was nylon. So basically, Dupont and a couple others invented nylon during kind of in the lead up to World War II, and it had a lot of military applications, right? And once it was perfected, and then after the war, the use of wool, you didn't need as much wool because you were making a lot, a lot, a lot of clothes started to be made out of synthetics. So if you didn't need a lot of wool, what used to be the case was that ranchers and farmers would have these big flocks of sheep around to shear and shear and shear wool. And then when you were done with them, they became mutton. 
And once the need for that was no longer there, then the byproduct of the sheep shearing, the mutton, became fell off our menu. So to me, what I like about those stories are they're prima facie interesting, to me at least. They may not be to anybody else. Um, there's data in them that is real and often surprising. And I think that if you kind of train yourself to examine effects and look for causes that may not be the proximate cause, then um, it makes your life more interesting. Is this what attracted you to Stephen Levitt's story in the first place? Like, how did you end up writing the initial article that became Freakonomics? So, I and, was, and by the way, this sounds like a very Stephen Dubnerish thing to look for these un, un, two dots that seem disconnected, but you can connect them via a story. Hence, your success as an article writer, podcaster, book writer, and so on. And we know everyone loves stories about golf and mutton. Exactly. Um, and horse manure, which, which was similar horse from manure. Super Freakonomics, yep. right? Yeah. We Where that manure. was the big environmental problem in New York City. Nobody knew how to solve it. And in Super Freakonomics, you explain what happened. Oh, I thought you said, and then Super Freakonomics solved the horse manure problem. Yeah. <laughs> it would have if we it did. was written back Yeah, then. we did. So do you guys know the horse manure problem? No, it's a big, it was a big. It, it was, was the like global a, warming of 1900. It was a huge problem, in, in, only in urban areas. So basically, um, you know, cities were powered by horses. New York City had uh, around, maybe around 1880 or so, New York City had 250,000 horses. Uh, and I think there were a little over a million people. So that's a lot of horses. And horses were used for m not just transportation, but for manufacturing all this stuff. And so they produced an amazing amount of horse manure in the old days when cities were getting bigger, but not so big and not so densely populated by horses. There was a robust market for horse manure as a fertilizer. And New York and a lot of other cities around the world, London, Paris, were surrounded by agricultural areas and farmers would pay um, for the horse manure. But then in cities like New York and London and, and um, Paris, there came to be a horse manure glut where there was an oversupply and the price fell to negative. You'd have to pay to get rid of it and nobody wanted to do that. How, so, how much feet was uh, at the end of each day on every street? Well, I, I don't know if anybody can answer that, but there are photos that show like here, you go uh, on these side streets of the Upper West Side and there would often be, I mean, it was a problem, it was a different problem at different times of the year. In the winter when it froze, it froze as these kind of mountains that became covered by snow. And then the spring when it thawed, that was the nastiest because then it became runoff. The reason that so many, you know, these brownstones, many of which are copied on the Dutch, and many of which are, have raised, you know, they, there's the parlor floor below, but then there's the big set of steps. So when you enter a brownstone, you're actually entering on the second floor. The reason that was ar architected that way was to escape the ground level lake of horse manure that was kind of constant, at least in the spring and the winter. So yeah, it was a big problem. It was a bad, bad for public health, et cetera. And then, so everybody was basically saying that there is no way we can solve the horse manure problem because we can't have cities without the horse, but with the manure, we can't really have cities. And so if you read the history, like the smart money of the day was saying, we need to depopulate our cities. We can't survive. And then that problem was solved by the invention of uh, the internal combustion engine, the electric streetcar. And, you know, virtually overnight, the horse manure problem went away. So I like those weird cause and effects. That was a long answer to a short question. Sorry. Getting back to your actual question about uh, Levitt Freakonomics. So I was writing a book about what I call the psychology of money. So what, kind of what we now know is behavioral economics. I've become very interested. This is, gosh, 15, 17, 18 years ago. Two, 2002. 
Well, I'd been, I'd started on that book in maybe 1999 or so. Um, and I'd been reading, like a lot of people have been reading these last several years, uh, the work of Danny Kahneman and also Amos Tversky, who were these two Israeli psychologists who had a very interesting way of looking at um, what psychology was. And, and they mostly explored the science of decision-making. And they tried to understand why humans make such often odd and seemingly irrational decisions. And they were both very brilliant in, in different ways, and they were a very good team. Anyway, that work got picked up really by just a handful of people in America, including Richard Thaler, who's an economist at the University of Chicago, and they turned it into what we now know as behavioral economics. So within behavioral economics, there's a lot of psychology and sociology. There's also some finance. There's behavioral finance is a, is a big sub-component sub of that. And I was writing a book kind of about the behavioral finance part. And the book was going to be called um, Money Makes Me Happy, parenthesis, except when it doesn't. And it was about this mystery of money and how money kind of like very few other things in life, maybe religion, maybe sex, maybe a few other things, is such a fraught topic that people make decisions around it in a way that doesn't seem rational. Um, and that's how I met James, because James, I was looking for was people not to rational. write about. James was very much not rational. Um, and James had, was in an interesting place financially that I'll let you tell them about. And so um, I was working on this book, um, and, I was, uh, and I'd, most of the reporting was done. So when you write a book, you usually often report research. This was for maybe two or three, four years I'd been doing the research. And I'd started to write. And you were the first chapter, actually. You were part of the first chapter. But then... Um, I had worked at the New York Times Magazine. They asked me if I would write a piece about this guy named Steve Levitt at the University of Chicago. And he had had one very famous piece of research, very controversial, about abortion and crime. He made the argument in a paper with a, a colleague uh, named John Donahue, who's a very good legal scholar and economist, that of all the explanations for why crime started to fall, like around 1990 in New York, but cities around the country, that most of the explanations that most people gave really empirically didn't hold up under inspection. And they made the argument that one very compelling argument was the legalization of abortion in the form of Roe v. Wade in 1973, the, the, the mechanism being that when fewer, when more women who were not ready to have a child had a means whereby to not have a child, that would produce a generation later less crime because the social science research shows us that there are a few things that are uh, you know, w worse or more difficult for a child to endure and grow up and to have a good productive life than being in a home where they're not wanted, where there aren't resources, where there's not love and time and so on. So this was a very controversial topic. When my editor at the Times Magazine asked me to go write a piece about Levitt because he just won an award, I turned it down like three or four times, which shows like how not smart I am. Cause like it, it turned out to be a really good idea, but I was already working on this other book and I called Levitt and we had a lot of nice conversations, but he, he had nothing to do with behavioral economics. He thought it was kind of a joke. He didn't do anything around money, but he had all this other research about like abortion and crime I mentioned, but also sumo wrestlers and collusion and cheating teachers and, real estate agents and how the name that people give their babies, whether it affects their life, the children's outcomes or not. And so finally, I was going to be in Chicago for something else anyway. And I 
looked up Levitt and I read all his papers and I interviewed him for like three days and I wrote the piece and it, it was so interesting that I decided to put the book about you, I'm sorry, in the drawer. I was perfectly fine with it. Um, <laughs> An entire then, book documenting all my failures. I wasn't ready for it I then. I think I <laughs> sent you at some point the chapter, didn't I? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, uh, it was like a third of the way done. But uh, yeah, but that book would have been good too. But, but I, it, so, so it seems what's very Stephen Dubner-ish in your writing is this idea that behind data, behind interesting data or weird data conclusions, there's, an, there's probably going to be an interesting story as well. And I think that's left out sometimes, a lot in sometimes science. Sometimes, sometimes not. It's really interesting. The more I think about it, the more I do, because now, you know, we did a few books and now I do a weekly radio show or pod, starts as a podcast, becomes a radio show. And the more I realize, um, like there are some formulas essentially for a story, but there are a lot of them. Like there are a lot of, like sometimes you'll find data that might seem interesting or it's not, or you'll find data that's interesting, but you can't find a way to talk about it in a way that's interesting, or it might be interesting data, but not meaningful. Then sometimes you'll find stories that you want to tell that you can't find the right data for. So it is kind of, it feels like every, every piece we do is as hard as the first one in a way, because you kind of just want it to be. But that's know. because there aren't easy ways to connect the dots. It's unusual ways that connect the dots and yet require true. a little extra work, which is what makes it stand out as a story. I guess that's true. Um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to think, like, like now, right now we're working on a piece about opioid, uh, the opioid crisis or whatever you want to call it. And, and I was reluctant to do that because, I mean, so many people are so interested in it and so many people are affected by it. I mean, it is a, a wide, 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 widespread issue for sure on many different dimensions. Uh, but I couldn't find a way in for a long time. Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. Just riffing on this. John and I were just researching this right before we walked over here. Uh, you know, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which makes Oxycontin, a lot of people have uh, allegedly, I guess, uh, died because of this, this op opiate, opioid. Uh, they spun off a company several years ago that makes one of the top oh. selling uh, laxatives. <laughs> So opiates constipate you. Laxatives, of course, relieve that. Do you think that was the plan Perfect to kind circle. of make make kind of dominate both ends, so to speak, of that spectrum? <laughs> that, uh, that, that's an interesting. I think two that, data points. <laughs> I think that could be a plan in the way that I have a, a theory that uh, you know, in England, London is talking about secession now, seceding from England and the UK. And in fact, there's an officially registered party called the London Dependence Party. If you want to crowdfund buying London, oh. I know where to go. <laughs> That'd be a little pricier than Greenland, yeah. So, um, but uh, so I've come to the conclusion. So here's the here's the way you connect this daisy chain. Uh, London is kind of interested in secession. Uh, Londoners voted fairly significantly for Remain, not to leave the EU. Uh, the 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 Brexit referendum was, as we know, launched by David Cameron, who wasn't really a Londoner originally, but very much a Londoner now, and his circle was plainly a, a London circle. So my theory is that the Brexit referendum was just a backdoor way to enable London to secede by getting people so irate about Brexit in the first place that now London just has a clean entry, a clean exit. So. If you buy that story, I'll buy your uh, Purdue coming and going story. Can I buy it with North Korean Juan? <laughs> you can try. 
So, uh, you want another question? Well, I think I think actually I just got the rap uh, signal. They want you to rap? Yeah, they want us to rap. <laughs> Not gonna rap with with lyrics, but you know, just gonna end. <laughs> so that was a great <laughs> ending. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for this was the question of the day reunion. What, Steve? What did you think? Like, uh, did it feel like the the good old days? We never did it. Oh, we only did it. Once, right? Live in front a of live audience. One? Yeah, that was very. That was a different one. Um, it's the very first time I did stand up. That's right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you did stand up as I well. Did stand up there. Yeah. Um, I thought this was nowhere near as bad as it could have been. I'm going <laughs> to say that. And I enjoyed you all, and I enjoyed you. This is, you know, the reason I don't do this is because. I'm not very good at it, so I like to do my, uh, you know, I'm a writer. I, I like to have 20 cracks at something. Um, I don't think that's true. When you were doing the Tell Me Something I Don't Know podcast, which was a podcast meant to be in front of a live audience, I thought you were very good those uh, were, most of that. Right, but those, a lot are, of work. those have a lot of pre-production in them, too. So a lot of live shows that everybody does are, you know, you essentially do as much work as you can. So we're getting ready to, like, do this live show taped in Chicago, and the topic is foreign policy. And we're having like Chuck Hagel, the former Secretary of Defense, on. It's like, I don't just show up for those, like, because um, I would be a total idiot. Um, but um, so yeah, for but to do a lie because our show is very much a studio show. We interview like for every forty-five minute show, we probably have eight or ten hours of tape, and most of it is really boring. So for those of you who listen to Freakonomics Radio, you're welcome. We cut out all the boring parts, but it. So which do, which do better? Do the live shows, when you put them on the podcast, do those do better or do the highly produced shows do, do better? The studio ones do better because they are better. I, it's I just, think you're going to make a better show if you have 10 hours of tape than if you have two hours of tape. I think in general, the highly produced podcast, I think the more hours you put into production and pre-production, the more downloads the podcast gets in general. Not always, but in, in general. Yeah, and then there's Joe Rogan, who... Um, I think doesn't like yeah. he just goes, but um, but it's obviously very right. It's very successful, obviously, plainly right. But then no. you think of like stuff like hardcore history, serial right. startup. This you know, American kind of these... Life is like yeah, eight million hours for every hour. Yeah, so I think in general, like the average, course, they use the they use the uh, like the Huck Finn or the Tom Sawyer model of work. It's like here's these stories that need to be made, and like an army of freelancers make them. And they, pay, I mean, it's like they pay them. It's not like they don't pay them, but um, it's a, it's a good way to do it. But our show's unfortunately not like that. So one quick question. So if if nobody got any value out of this whatsoever, this next thing I'm going to ask you, which you could answer in in one minute, how did this skinny Asian kid Kobayashi win the world's hot dog eating competition? What was the exact Technique he used in, I'll give you 90 seconds. You mean uh, physically or like physically. Phil philosophically? What no, was the technique? I don't care about physically. Physically. Oh. How, well, how many hot dogs did he eat and, and how did he right, do so it? So the first time he won it, I think he ate 50 at Coney Island, which was uh, just a little over double the world record, but he's since got it up to, uh, I think, about 72 or three in 10 minutes. It used to be 12 minutes. So the physical method, I'll tell you the physical method, but I think that the philosophical or the methodological reasoning is way more important but you don't i won't tell you that but we wrote about that so physically he would take the dog break the dog separate it it's called the solomon after the solomon story in the bible where solomon threatened to tear the baby in two then he would try to start eating both halves but then he'd realize that 
that didn't really optimize so much. So we'd separate the dog and the bun from each other. And then he would start to eat the dogless bun and the bunless dog separately because they have such different densities. So it makes more sense to separate them. And he found that the dogless, sorry, the bunless dog, you could kind of just slurp down like a dolphin. You barely need to chew that. And the bunless, sorry, the dogless bun, that was actually harder because it's kind of dense. So what he found is he would soak that while he was slurping down the bunless dog, he would soak the dogless bun in water, squeeze it out, pop it in like a big bun ball and, and put that down. And some people thought, wait, why do you want to take an extra water? Because that's filling up your capacity. But actually that even shortcutted it more because you're not having to stop to drink like all the others did. So he made it very efficient. He also shook a lot, which he thought forced the food down. And he also worked out like a maniac. He was incredibly physically fit and he eats very delicately and very healthily. So like that's the one time a year, five times a year that he eats um, crazy. But he's an amazing like technician. Like if you put Kobayashi to work on some other problem, like a medical device problem or whatnot, he would solve it. That's my story. So that's incredibly value, valuable. If, if people didn't get any value of anything else, at least now you know how to win a hot dog competition. Where can people read about the, the methodology, the, the philosophy um, I think it? we wrote about him in Think Like a Freak. Um, I'm pretty with, sure with that's the right. philosophy? I don't, Sorry? With the philosophical aspects? Uh, when I say philosophy, I don't mean philosophy, capital P. I mean like methodological, like breaking down how he came to realize that these physical uh, decisions that I just described, why they worked. That's, that's all I mean by that. But um, yeah. But he also, I'll tell you his biggest philosophical thing. Sorry, are we, should I just stop talking? No, no, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Here's the biggest thing. When I first met him, and he lives in New York now, or kind of back and forth, and he's a lovely, interesting, really interesting human. Um, when I first met him, I asked him a very typical, naive kind of journalistic question, which was when you first competed at Coney Island and came here as a rookie and nobody knew you and he was this big, um, and the world record, existing world record was I think 25 and an eighth or 25 and a quarter hot dogs and buns, and he ate 50 that first year. When I said, when you first came, did you really expect that you would set a world record and not only set it, but you know, break it by that much? And he said, oh no, 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 I did not pay any allegiance to the existing record. I said, that's, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I had concluded that everybody else competing before me was basically trying to solve the wrong problem. They were trying to figure out, how can I eat more hot dogs fast? How, I was trying to figure out, how can I eat, make one hot dog faster to eat? And so because I thought that I found a better way to think about the problem, therefore had a better solution, I didn't want to put in my mind this number of 25 and an eighth as some kind of barrier because he believed it was an artificial barrier. And to me, even though hot dog eating is kind of silly and gross, to me that's an incredibly powerful concept if you think about how many artificial barriers we all pay allegiance to all the time. Now look, some barriers are real. There are physical and financial limitations, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we all pay a little bit too much allegiance to this is the way it's done because this is the way it's done. You don't. I mean, you're constantly looking for new and ever more interesting ways to do weirder and weirder things, which is awesome. But I think most of us um, conform too much and don't think about how we can ignore that barrier and get beyond it. If you ever want to convince yourself, let's say you haven't exercised in a long time and you say, okay, I'm going to do something today. I'm going to do push-ups. And if you get down and you tell yourself, I'm going to do 10 push-ups, that's what you tell your, your, you tell your mind. 
then by the time you get to about eight or nine, you're really tired. If, however, you, the same person, told yourself, I'm going to do 20 push-ups, and 10 never entered your mind, and you get down and start doing push-ups, you won't start getting tired until like 17, 18, 19. Obviously, you know, there's some variance in there, but the mind is easily the strongest body in the human muscle, and we like don't take advantage of it. So that's my story. All right, well, thanks, Stephen, for joining, us, joining me with this question of the day reunion. Thanks for throwing the reunion, James. Excellent. fun. Done. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.